Hello and welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Film Club podcast. In this episode, director Dome Karakowski discusses his new J.R.R. Tolkien biopic, Tolkien, with moderator Scott Mance. This conversation was recorded during the film's opening weekend at the Landmark in Los Angeles. Ladies and gentlemen, what did you think of Tolkien? <laughs> well, please give it up for director Dome Karakowski. So, you know, I think the question is, what was your introduction to Tolkien, to, to Hobbit, Lord of the Rings? Like, when was your, your, first, uh, your first encounter with Tolkien? Um, I was around 12, 13, and um, to go a little bit back, at that time, um, I was growing without a father. I was quite miserable. I was low, and I was being, actually being bullied and, and felt like an outsider. I had moved to Finland at the age of four, very similar to Tolkien. I actually spoke three languages at, at the age of four as Tolkien. And then I think it was a teacher who gave me this you know, book for an essay to do about fantasy. And, and then you know, she said, I think you like this. And I read it, and those stories, I think somewhat became friends of mine at that time and inspired me very heavily. I started playing the Dungeons and Dragons board games where you create your own stories, you know, throw the dice and you become a wizard or I usually was the wizard or I was a hero that wanted to win the Elven Prince. So at the age of 13, I think my first crush was Elven Prince, Edith Brett. So, so to do your first Engl English language film on Tolkien, I mean, like, this must have been like a dream come true for you. It is. I mean, it's, uh, it's always hard. Every film is hard. <laughs> And I think when you do a film about an iconic character like Tolkien, at the same time it's a dream, it, it feels wonderful. At the same time you have this pressure of, like, can you ever succeed? You know, will there, will there always be the perception of the audience? When you're making the film, will there always, every, each and every one of these iconic characters, people have their perception how the character should be portrayed or what the story should be? You know, so I kind of anticipated that I'm going to be ha heavily hammered <laughs> after the release. You know, when you're when you're making a uh, a movie that is about someone just so revered, to 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 humanize that person, but still to capture their genius and their inspiration. So, like, what are what are the challenges? Like, what's the tightrope that you have to walk, and to to make a a relatable story, but also see where where this this man got his many inspirations from. Well, the, the big part is, of course, the research, because it's so difficult. Like, I mean, there's a lot of documentation, but it's not, it's not necessarily emotional. You know, there's not a personal blog that he wrote uh, yeah. to the internet where he would express his daily feelings. Um, so you are very much, you are looking to interpret your character through different opinions. Everyone who writes about it, it's a filter. So basically, when they depict timelines or events of years, when they analyze it, it's a filter of the writer, right? So I would meet everybody that I could, Tolkien experts, uh, or I had time to, and then read everything, listen to all the interviews, um, analyze illustrations, because I went to art school, so how a person kind of draws a line or the colors he uses at a certain age, that tells a lot about his temper or his feelings. So the challenge, the first challenge, is to find your interpretation of the character, who he is, or who they are, in this case. Read the letters, 
And a big part is what is not said in the letters. So, you know, in the I read the letters and he doesn't speak about his mother. He doesn't speak about poverty, which, so you understand that those element, elements that he must have felt deep down were difficult. Um, then the challenge, of course, becomes the dramatization. You know, to, you know it, I've done, I've tried to do two biopics that didn't succeed. They never became a film, and we try to be quite factual in those, and because they, one of them was an iconic Finnish war hero. Uh -huh. we, you know, we were working with the generals, and it was just impossible. Like, it, it, it was just, it was like reading a Wikipedia page, the script. So, you know, that, you have to kind of dramatize it so that you flush out the motion of the character. You know, the scenes itself, and that's, and that's, that's a heavy, that's a heavy, heavy work. Um, because if you, if you live, if the character is not, if the character isn't real, you can go AWOL. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, I want to depict this distress, and then you make up him banging walls or become a drug addict, or you can just generate, generate any, everything. But you're kind of confined in the truth of the character, you know, the emotional truth. So for instance, this film takes liberties, but it's emotional truth. I 100% believe and stand behind that these, the, these were the characters, these how, how they felt or the emotions were those, those times. So when it comes to casting, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. So Nicholas Holt, uh, I had seen a movie two years ago that he, he played. It was Rebel in the Rye, and he played J.D. Salinger. And I was wondering if you had seen uh, Nicholas in that film, because no, he was terrific in that movie. It wasn't released yet when we cast him. Um, so the movie actually I had seen uh, was a film called Sandcastle oh, sure. from Netflix. And I, of course, I'd seen his kind of the Mad Max and the kind of wider release work, uh, such as, of course, About a Boy, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. a bit of a different actor. Um, and then, you know, X-Men, some of the X-Men films. So I had seen, I had seen his scale. And of course, I started casting from the top, from the Tolkien. And Nicholas, because of this film called Sandcastle, he was kind of on top of my list. And then studio had worked with him on the favorite. So there was a lot of love from both sides. So he was actually the first person we met, or I met, and uh, uh, I didn't have a script at that time that I wanted to show him. I was still shaping the script. Um, so, you know, we just met and he calls, it's still kind of a weirdest, weirdest audition ever because you don't have a script and you don't talk about the character. And we, we, we just talked about life and our experiences and how we ended up to be who we are. And, and then you read the lines who he is and through the lines who he is and he's, he's a very intellect, He's very witty, very fast, and he's very warm, and there's a family guy in him. Which, so I read all these traits kind of through who Tolkien is. So then you, and knowing his scale and seeing his scale and feeling that an actor at that age is really blossoming, they felt like, okay, you know, this can be something, you know, this is my Tolkien. And then it was just uh, finding to, fi schedule fighting, ba schedule fighting basically because he was doing another X-Men. So, like, He's, I, mean, I know he is a big he, a fan as well, but like what kind of, uh, how much immersion did he get to dive into with his own research for playing the character? Well, there's this beautiful thing that when he was in Montreal shooting X-Men, I was doing pre-production in England, so we would Skype like almost every other, uh, every other night and talk and uh -huh. just go through script, talk, thoughts. So he was very much sparring me a lot during the script phase and his character, of course, and we talked through the young Tolkien also, because the idea was, of course, that he's experienced all these scenes. 
So we'd go through the motions that he's, he, in a way, he would have to act for me during the Skype, the young Tolkien scenes, mm -hmm. so that he's experienced them. So how we build him towards that character, it, it is him eventually, and of course, it's, it's very much his movie. And then he would, what is wonderful, he would study how Tolkien, I didn't ask for this, he would study how Tolkien illustrated. So I actually have a text message from him without telling me. He sent me a text message where he's wearing the beast mask, and then he has a, you know, basically a picture of Tolkien illustrations, which he's done. And, and, and I love the picture because it tells a lot how he wanted to develop into this. And, um, and you learn a lot when you, would, again, about drawings the illustrations, the pain, or, or is it therapy, or is it emotion? What kind of emotion you're putting on paper? So you talked a little bit about the young Tolkien. So how did you find the right actor to play the young Tolkien who would compliment, <laughs> you know, Nicholas? Well, he was the most difficult find because, you know, I start with Nicholas Hult, and Nicholas has a very specific face, um, you know, and then how do you find an actor who can, young actor who can look like him? Yeah. And we cast hundreds of boys and. I almost had lost hope, and then this boy self sent the self tape. You know, his dad shot an iPhone or something, and oh, and wow. uh, and was like, okay, that's it. And then we did an audition, uh, one by you know face to face audition, and that was it. And the other boys I was casting like simultaneously, the older boys and the younger boys, so I could match up a little bit. Like, okay, what's the best pair? And if I would find an older boy that I loved, then I would find a younger boy that matched him, and vice versa. And uh, and Lilia did through uh, 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 just a Skype interview. He was she was in LA. I was in England. So the the love story uh, between Edith and and Tolkien it's it's just like a, a, a Romeo and Juliet type of thing going on here. It's very Shakespearean. Uh, but in, in finding the right the right Edith and and to find the right Edith who is going to have the right chemistry with Nicholas. Why Lily Collins and how did she how did she get this? Well, you know, you have to go back to that. I mean, she's blossoming, I think, as an actress yeah. very much at the, at the moment. I think I had seen, I had seen again, a Netflix film called To the Bone, which, uh -huh. which she plays, yes. uh, uh, which she plays uh, an uh, anorexic girl. So basically depicting her own experiences. And I found it very courageous. I think when an actress or an actor does that, that you dig something so true to yourself that that usually opens up um, your perception about acting more. You kind of take yourself to another level. So I was intrigued, and then she has this immersive warmth in her. You know, it just it's difficult when you Skype. You don't necessarily, you know, it feels like there's a dimension or there's a glass between you, and um, and then she just ex that warmth in her just explodes that shine in her, and it feels, you know, in a poetic way, you know, reminding me of as a thirteen-year-old boy reading the books and my first crush, mo crush most likely being an elven princess. And then it feels like this is the elven princess, this is the girl, this is the shine that Tolkien must have seen in Edith. As this, when they're dancing in the, in the scene, they're dancing, that, that scene, or Edith is dancing in the tree, among the trees, that scene inspired Tolkien to write the love story between Beren and Luthien. Mm -hmm. Beren being a mortal man and Luthien, <laughs> being, Luthien being the elven princess. So, Edith Brat was kind of the first Elven princess in all these stories, and inspired basically the kind of the root of the idea of an Elven princess, and those were the names that are on the tombstone. Yeah, the the if, if he had his own fellowship going on uh, in, in you know growing up, uh, it's to see the parallels between his own life. I mean, so much of it, uh, even obviously through World War One, 
uh, to see that he had his own sort of like fellowship. And you're watching, uh, well, watching the movies or reading the books of the Fellowship of the Ring. It's, well, there it is. You know, it's, um, it's really fun to watch this movie and to see the influences and the inspiration. But it's also uh, working with the Tolkien estate, I'm sure, must have been a little tricky. Uh, did they, did they like get to see the film? Or? Oh, we didn't work with them actually, which which is uh, which was totally intentional because you actually try not to work with the state usually. Oh, it is um, the reason is often because you um, you try you, you know I've done it quite a few times, and I said two of these scripts biopics never became a film, and the reason is you start to kind of write the winner's history when you work with people who are either protecting a legacy or, or you know, just if, you know, I don't know the Tolkien estate, but they might be the kindest and nicest they estate ever, but then you, they become your friends and you start servicing them and not the film and the drama of the film. You know, you have to take liberties. liberties. I mean, the, just we've had, for instance, a good example is like how Edith and Tolkien get married. Um, you know, in real life, they got married before war they actually met with the fiance, whose name was George Field. And uh, we tried to have a version where we, because I kind of found that really intriguing in English, that scene, you know, talking, being there, and then shake hands, and uh, so I'm, I'm sorry, we can take your uh -huh. spouse. And I found it a very kind of a beautiful scene. So we tried to write it as it was, but it was boring. Uh -huh. <laughs> it was boring, it was long, it was 20 minutes long, the whole sequence. And, and I didn't feel the emotion, what talking and Edith felt, it was more historic. So then you change, you rewrite it so that it is, we rewrote, rewrote it and we had you know, wonderful writers and we rewrite it so that you, you, know, you pack it in the six minutes, but so it flushes the emotion out. So try, try any estate in the world, try explaining that. You know, you're a filmmaker, you this is what I do. I've done this for now 15 years or something. And <laughs> it, it is, that's why. But I offered them a chance to watch the film with me and so I can explain. And, and hopefully, hopefully when they see it, they like it. I want to open up to the audience, so if you have questions, uh, feel free. And wow, that was fast. What is your question, Sarah? Nice and loud, please. Hi, uh, Master Priest of a Film, by the way. Really Thank you. Master of a Film, by the way. <laughs> just, need, just needed to convey that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. As, as we're filming, if, let's go to the um, script scene. Do you have to be specific? Yeah, so, so yes, I, a lot of this, basically almost all of the fantasy, um, it's kind of coming from those visions or thoughts that I had when I read, read the books. So a lot of them is, it's really tricky to write them in the script. So I was, a lot of it I was just kind of while I was shooting. So for instance, the last shot when he confronts, it's, it's kind of a first image of him, like from the Silmarillion, Fingolfin, uh, confronting Morgoth, the Lord of Evil. And it's not yet that, of course, he's still creating. He hasn't written any of the books, but we're kind of showing ideas and moments and feelings that he then later uses. So that was not in the script. So I just shouted to Nick, we were shooting the, basically the second to last shot. And I was like, I feeling, there's a feeling there, this, this emotion about the character confronting the ultimate evil, something so vain. So Nick, Nick, come in here and explain this, what I kind of wanted to do in, in camera. And then I started building the VFX on top of it and the story on top of the editing on top of it. And there were several moments like that, that kind of, because it was, it's so psychological, everything there, everything there, all the fantasy elements come out, out of inner psychology. Like the two knights, uh, 
it wasn't the script that way, kind of build and shape it a bit. So that, um, the, that, for instance, the Black Knight is not an Nazgul, it's not a ring wraith yet. Uh, but how does those ideas come? So you, you take kind of a couple of steps back. So that he first envisions a white knight, like when with a Sigurd killing Fafnir. And then that's kind of very pure and the white horses uh, are very classical to this. Then while his mind gets corrupted during war, he sees this bloodshed that becomes a fallen knight, a black figure, an evil figure. And then that becomes an internal battle you know, inside him, so the good between evil. So then he later can hopefully use that in creating Nazgul. So that's so internal that it's really difficult to put on page. So it's more like, okay, let's shoot it and I'll, you know, edit and shape it and do that, yes. Yes, uh, yes, in the red, nice quote. Nice and loud, thank you. I'll stand up just so I can speak louder. Um, I was very taken with the cinematography yes. and how <coughs> the cinematography was used to connect the scenes of war with the scenes from his, uh, from the Lord of the Rings and such that came later. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that development? Um, yes, I mean, basically, when you look at his drawings and elements, he felt, he was, I was surprised, first of all. My vision of him was, you know, this privileged white man in Oxford smoking a pipe, debating with C.S. Lewis about Christianity, about elves. Yeah, in a, in a, you know, that was my image of him before I dwelled in the story. And then you find out that there's this orphan, poor boy that has risen through social classes and the, the feeling of, I said, you know, not writing letters about your mother, not really talking about it. How much did he go into therapy, you know? Probably didn't have dear doctor there. Uh, so, so those drawings were kind of dark. So that's a feeling I got. So the visuality, the cinematography is quite dark kind of in the starting. But then there's always this kind of light coming into the dark. So Edith is a light. So for instance, when they kiss, when the shot ends, the, there's a light surrounding. I mean, there's darkness surrounded, but they're in the light. So we would play a lot about with those kind of feelings. It's su we intended, intended to be subtle. I wouldn't explain it before the film, <laughs> so that you know you get a feeling. But we played with a lot of like kind of how the colors get warmer than Oxford when you know he kind of finds his place. Oxford is more golden and and uh, uh, kind of the golden city. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. You got a question? Since you're in the front row. Yeah. Um, really nice looking film. Thank you. And I was just wondering, um, in terms of emotional accuracy, American directors go towards more an experience than an accuracy of sorts. And so I really appreciate that. I was wondering how you get to that accuracy and what, what t little tips uh, you found in the material. Thank you. Very good question and how to explain it. <laughs> it's always like gut. It's always a gut. I mean, you know, um, to be accurate on the character is just, I said, you know, even when you, re even you, when you listen to him talk to a BBC interview in the 60s, this is an older gentleman explaining things. You know, he's, this is a gentleman who's already gone past war. And for instance, Finland, we have a generation, we had two wars against the Soviet Union during the Second World War. Uh, and you feel these older guys, they are quite P in peace. So you have to try to read through the younger person. Like how do you get the 100, 100 years ago events, the younger talking. And what tips do you find from the material? Um, 
apart from the illustrations, apart from the letters, um, there there's certain events you find. You know, like for instance, I found this notebook where it's written that he actually did steal a bus. You know, he ended up, ended up in a pub fight, was jailed uh, in Oxford, and he wrote like at that time it was you know. I can't remember the extract, ex exact phrase, but basically saying well, I was a bad Catholic, you know, was, uh, you know, didn't go to church, and which is, you know, okay, that tells a lot. That's a kind of a moment. That's a moment of time which we see here. And I actually wanted Nicholas to drive the bus, but it was a museum bus; he didn't drive. And, uh, and so, and I, and you know, and then this story. So you find these moments that you can't necessarily do the scene per se. So of course we combined you know, going to the bus and then having problems with the police and we just kind of skipped, skipped the pub fight because, you know, you don't want to make it three hours. Um, but you get this right emotion that you are kind of, you are in pain and you analyze through that. Why, why does he do that in Oxford? He's supposed to be happy, you know, he's found his place. And then, of course, it's the pain of Edith. So those are kind of small things you find from there. Oh, the sugar lump. That was actually, that's a true story. They would actually go, I, can't rem I think it was, I, I, there are different stories. There's one book who says it wasn't the Grand Hotel, actually. They were, went to the Grand Hotel and the cafe there, which we are doing, and then I think there, uh, there's another book saying it's another cafe. Um, but basically, uh, th they would do that. They would throw sugar lumps in. And the story of them, apart from you know being married before the war and actually meeting George Field, the fiance, is quite accurate. They were first friends in the same foster home and became lovers, forbidden love. Edith was a Protestant, he was a Catholic. Uh, and then, you know, he wasn't allowed to meet her, write to her. Father Francis forbade that. And then eventually they became lovers for eternity because now he's written her in his books. Well, last question is right there. Yes. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful movie. I think the time's short, so I'm not going to say everything I was going to say. Uh, but I was crying, and my heart was singing. And I know he appreciates, his spirit appreciates the wonderful tribute that you gave him. Um, the two questions I had was, uh, do you know why he chose to take so much from Finnish in creating his language? And also, is the third initial in his name, is that his confirmation? Uh, Royal is the third name, uh, John Ronald Royal. Uh, is the name, and I actually don't know, I can't remember the background of the royal. Um, royal is, I think it is grandfather's name. I think, I, I, I rem there's a connection, royal, there is a connection, I think it's his grandfather's name. Um, the other Arthur, question. Arthur, Arthur Tolkien is his father, I think it's Arthur Royal Tolkien, and I think then Royal was the grandfather. So that's, yeah, that's, I, I think, that's how, anyway, that's a guess, that's a guess. Um, regarding the Finnish language, your first question is how, why did he choose Finnish language? I'm from Finland. Um, so, so of course we kind of know, we kind of grow with that history. Um, I'm half American, half Finnish, so you know, there's both sides in me, but um, he loved the Norse mythologies. He actually, he actually, as in the film, he kind of came up with Finnish language in Oxford and he actually wanted to study Finnish. He lent the Finnish grammar book. He, <laughs> the specific reason, my, my guess is that the Finnish language partly resonates a lot from nature. So he, he did love the Kalevala, which is in Finnish mythology, because it's so nature-driven. And as we see in the film, trees were his 
if not, you know, one of his biggest love. And um, so I think there's a nat- kind of that touch. The Norse mythology, the Icelandic mythologies, all the mythologies he loved. But the Finnish language, for some reason, Finnish language is quite harsh. It's like, minä nyt puhun teille suomea tässä, ja se ei varmaan kuulosta miltään. And I'm, I'm saying it kind of more singing than a normal Finn. <laughs> a Finn might be very harsh in the language. So it's, it's weird why specifically Finnish. Um, for him, I think it just sounded mythological. And he used, of course, at this time in the film, he, he, I mean, eventually he used Finnish language to create an elven language called Kenya, Quenya. And uh, of course, at this fra- frame, as n- nothing in the film is yet finished, right? So we had to create a language for the fairies, you know? So it's kind of pre the elven language language to show how he, uh, so we, we had the ang- professor of Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Saxon Adam, Andy, I mean Andy from um, Oxford, who holds the same chair as Tolkien hold, held. He actually created the language for us using, and then you know I, w- I helped with the Finnish, and, um, and Andy was telling a lot of stories. Basically, Professor Wright, then Tolkien, then there was, I think it was one in between, and then Andy. So he had all this stuff in his room, which were kind of most like a Tolkien's. So, ladies and gentlemen, you know, how do you spread the word about movies these days? It's word of mouth. And how do you do word of mouth these days? You go on Facebook. You go on Twitter. You go on Instagram. Uh, If you're still using MySpace, uh, knock yourself out. But please do spread the word about Tolkien. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. And thank you so much, Bob. Thank you.